1: to the podcast that brings the global economy to you. I want to start this series with a story about tennis, or more precisely, the All-England Lawn Tennis Club in Wimbledon. When the Wimbledon Championships were cancelled earlier this summer, a lot of tennis fans and sponsors were pretty upset, but someone who probably wasn't so unhappy was the person who persuaded the club many years ago to take out something called pandemic insurance. The premiums were around $2 million a year, which must have seemed a lot at the time. But that policy meant the club could cancel the championships altogether for 2020 and come out ahead with a total payout of nearly $150 million. Well done, that person. Why do I tell you this? Well, I thought of that number recently when I read about the global pandemic insurance facility which the World Bank set up a few years ago. That program has also been paying out this year, and the total payments for all of the world's least developed economies will be just over 190 million dollars. So that's 150 million for 22 tennis courts in southwest London, 190 million for the 64 poorest countries in the world. Today's program is about winners and losers in the COVID economy and the K-shaped recovery, the phenomenon. We're seeing everywhere where some of the economy is taking off, coming out of this recession, but other parts are still heading down. The director of the London School of Economics, Baroness Minouche Shafiq, is going to give me the global picture on that in a few minutes. Why some countries have done a good job of protecting the poor in this crisis, some clearly haven't. I'll also be talking to our China economy editor, James Meger about life in China without Covid. They haven't had a case for six weeks. but first. We have a report from Bloomberg senior reporter Sean Donnan from Cleveland, Ohio, where the gap between winners and losers lately has been very stark indeed. 2020 CBG 6870
0: BLUS1 LLC versus Calais Gattings Hi. Uh, hi, Miss Gattings. How are you? Good morning,
2: I'm fine. On September 4th, nursing assistant Kalei Gathings did something many of us have been doing in this crisis. She dialed into a Zoom meeting. Only this one was a little bit more consequential than most. Gathings was joining an online session of the Cleveland Housing Court. She was before Magistrate Mark Wiseman because she was being evicted after falling behind on a $900 a month rent on her home in the city's Mount Pleasant neighborhood.
3: It's, I can't.
4: It's out of control. I can't. I just can't. It's, it's, okay. it's too much. Okay. Um, wh- where would you go if you were evicted? The shelter?
3: I have nowhere to go. That's why I need a, a couple weeks to find somewhere to go. I've been
1: looking. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to ask all these personal questions, but there's oh, a, new, sure. a, new, uh, a new program going on with the, with the government that was instituted by the CDC. Okay. So we need to find out some of these questions. Did, did you get a stimulus check? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
2: All right. So, um. Around the same time, in a 20 minute drive west of Gathing's house, tech workers Nathan Hodge and his wife, Erica Schulstad, were pondering something rather different. The finishing touches for the four bedroom house in the suburb of Lakewood that they had snapped up in a booming market over the summer.
0: Let's see. So, there's a lot of outdoor space, like a nice big deck, and, uh, um, big front porch. Um, we made a list of just like must-haves in our house. One of the,
2: one of the things we, we like to say is a, a Reese Witherspoon um, porch couch. If you want to understand how the U.S. recovery is reinforcing a legacy of inequality that has often been based on race, those two stories are pretty good starting points. The reality is that the gap is growing between the solidly middle class and the working poor in one of the world's richest economies. In an election year, people talk a lot about political polarization. But an equally consequential and growing economic divide has materialized as well. Think of it as the divide between bread baking America, that's those of us working from home and learning to bake sourdough, and breadline America, those who are lining up at food banks and joining the growing ranks of the food and housing insecure. A lot of that is the result of who has been hit by the COVID crisis. Lower income Americans working for restaurants and hotels and small businesses have borne the brunt of the job losses. 40% of Americans earning less than $40,000 a year were laid off as a result of this year's crisis, according to the Federal Reserve. And many of those jobs aren't coming back as quickly as others. Housing is also playing a big dividing role in what the economy looks like. Almost half of renters polled by the U.S. Census Bureau in September said they were likely to be evicted in the next two months. A similar survey found less than 20% of homeowners were worried about foreclosure. The shape of the recovery, and what that means for the most vulnerable parts of the American population, has a lot to do with policy choices. The Fed's response to the crisis... Cutting policy rates and pouring liquidity into financial markets has brought mortgage rates down to historic lows. That's fueled a boom in home purchases and refinancings. If you are a homeowner, or looking to buy, and are able to work from home, your personal corner of the economy looks pretty good right now. That's the current reality in many of Cleveland's predominantly white suburbs and for people like Hodge. It's weird that the housing market is so... Crazy but you think about like people want more space and interest rates are historically low. For someone like Gathings who was laid off from her job at a nursing home and fell behind on the rent, your life looks pretty different. Especially when Congress has been deadlocked for most of the past few months on how to roll out any new assistance.
3: I tried for everything and it's just like I wasn't getting approved for anything and then when I went back to work I'm not working as many hours it's just a lot I just can't keep up with it it's too much on my
2: own Gathing's fate that day took 4 minutes and 45 seconds to decide the most important decision made by the magistrate was that she wasn't eligible for a national moratorium on evictions that had been announced two days before she didn't even know it existed And the reason she wasn't eligible, the magistrate ruled, was that she hadn't made a good faith effort to apply for rental assistance, something she also didn't know about. She might have learned about all of these things if she had only known that she was entitled to help from a free lawyer as well. Judge Mona Scott, who earlier this year became the first black woman to take charge of the housing court, says such problems still plague the eviction process. That's even after the city became one of America's few to enforce a right to counsel for tenants. She sees a crisis building before her. Cleveland is a city that bears the scars of years of housing discrimination against its black residents. And like other U.S. cities, it also hasn't tackled bigger structural problems.
0: Um, Even in
4: 2020, rent is taking up 70 percent of people's pay. So we're not really addressing some um, necessary issues. We're not having these hard conversations
2: This current economic crisis is also building on the legacy of the last one. Cleveland was one of the epicenters of the subprime mortgage and foreclosure crisis more than a decade ago, and housing activists like Zach Germaniuk will tell you that they are still dealing with the scars. We're one of the most heavily segregated cities in the country, and quite frankly, real estate is really at the centerpiece of that uh, that tragic history. Hodge and Schulstad saw their new house three hours after the listing went online. They made an offer an hour later and discovered that there were already a half dozen others. They ended up pleading their case in a letter and raising their bid to $10,000 over the asking price. Importantly, the final price that they paid was more than double what the previous owner paid for it in 2011. Julie Wiest is a real estate agent who specializes in some of Cleveland's western suburbs.
0: Cleveland's really strong. I mean, you're going, you know, downtown market, people are buying left and right, um, all the way out to the suburbs. You know, it's really the um, pandemic has really not slowed anybody down. In
2: some predominantly black zip codes of Cleveland, however, prices have tumbled by a fifth or more over the past year. Activists say that decline is caused in part by another phenomenon born in the last crisis, house flippers and out-of-town investors. The home Gathings lived in until she had to leave at the end of September is a prime example. In one two-year stretch, the house sold seven times, including four times in just one month last year. Its current owner is an anonymous shell company called BLUS1 LLC. But dive into public records and do a little sleuthing, and you end up talking to Thibaut Gayon, He's a French real estate agent and he runs a Miami-based company that specializes in selling Cleveland houses to French investors.
1: Bonjour, bienvenue dans notre agence. On va faire un petit tour aujourd'hui. L'investissement immobilier à Cleveland.
2: C'est une ville avec un fort potentiel. Donc euh, qui est en train de connaître une croissance. Kent euh, says what is énorme. great about Cleveland's property market is that you can buy houses cheap and get fantastic cash flow from rent. Gathing's home would have gotten you a gross annual return of 16 percent.
1: And it's just a complementary market for my French investors that are looking for um, cash flowing properties.
2: Housing activists don't see it quite the same way. They argue the out-of-state investors have actually contributed to the economic decline of Cleveland's east side neighborhoods. At the same time, they're inflating rents. Germanyuk is a housing lawyer who works in the Slavic village neighborhood, which has seen its own influx of new absentee landlords. He says they are often more focused on cash flow than what's happening to their properties or the community around them. That ends up hitting neighbors who do care, eventually forcing them to sell into a skewed market. I think a lot of times people find that, you know, the house that they had, you know, put so much time and money in, Fixing it up, they put untene, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. They redid the roof back in, you know, two thousand three. They, did, you know, all this stuff, and they find out, hey, guess what? That 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 house that you care so much about is worth fifteen thousand dollars. The churn certainly hasn't contributed to an appreciation in the price of homes like the one Gathings was evicted from. It reached a peak value of $93,000 in 2004 after nearly 30 years of ownership by just two families, according to property records. By the time Guillaume's French investor bought it last year, that value had slumped by a third. Which brings us to the current crisis. And how many people worry it isn't done yet when it comes to the Cleveland or the broader U.S. housing market. So far, neither have been hit by the wave of evictions many have feared. In Cleveland's case, that is largely due to a rental assistance program that is running out of money, according to Kevin Novak, who runs CHN Housing Partners, a community group and developer that oversees the program.
5: I'm not sure that we're going to get through the end of the year with what we have available for our three months of emergency assistance. Yeah, um, It seems to me like this is a crisis that's going to go beyond the end of the year.
2: The national moratorium announced in early September did not come with any new funds for rental assistance, and it did not include any measures to forgive tenants their debts, which means landlords are watching the past due rent bills pile up. To Judge Scott of the Cleveland Housing Court, the question is not whether new evictions will come, it's when. A like, so moratorium does
5: not mean you yeah. do not pay your rent. does not mean you don't pay your car note does not mean you
4: do not pay your gas and light, your cell phone bills, it still means that you have to pay these bills um, because it's not if they come and
0: collect, it's when they come and collect.
2: When that new wave of evictions does come, it will have other consequences as well. One recent study of thousands of evictions in Cleveland found they resulted in not just housing instability, but children missing more school and kids and families that are evicted also being tested less often for lead poisoning, a persistent problem in the city. Meanwhile, homeowners in better-off suburbs can look forward to a property market fueled by low interest rates for some time. The Fed in September indicated it expected not to raise rates until 2023, which is when it expects things to get back to normal in the U.S. economy. But for those hard-pressed neighborhoods on the east side of Cleveland, getting back to normal would not be much to celebrate. For them and countless neighborhoods like them in today's America, that would mean just lagging ever further behind. For Bloomberg News, I'm Sean Donnan.
1: So I'm delighted now to talk about some of the broader issues raised by that piece with Minuchin Shafiq, now Baroness Shafik, uh, director of the London School of Economics. But I think uh, she's one of few people who, before that, held very senior positions at the World Bank, the IMF, and the Bank of England, where she was deputy governor um, most recently. So Minuchin, welcome on the uh, welcome on Stephanomics. Um What I'm struck by, and obviously there was a sort of vivid demonstration in that piece of the tale of of two cities, um, that this is a recession. I mean, recessions always have an unequal impact on people. But this one, it seems rare, even by the standards of recessions, to have one in which a big chunk of the economy has been hit by this record recession. But actually, quite a lot of people on the upper end of the income scale have done better as a result of this uh, recession. They've now got savings that they didn't expect to have. We've seen soaring savings rates, which presumably will go, it could well go into their pension pots or their wealth. And we've actually seen their existing wealth go up because of what's happened to the stock market. Um, Has that been true globally? Or would you say the inequality was particularly stark in the US?
4: Well, some people have called COVID the great revealer because it's revealed all of these fundamental Inequities and weaknesses in our in our economies and in our societies, and I often think about uh, the impact of COVID as K-shaped. You know, people have debated is it going to be a V-shaped, U-shaped, L-shaped recovery. I think K is the right letter because you have a sharp drop, and then some things go up and some things go down. And what we're seeing is that some sectors and some parts of society are doing better, and others. Have done much worse. Those that have done worse have tended to be women, the young, and those who are in precarious or flexible work. Is the US worse? I think the US is worse for two reasons. One, that the safety net in the US is much thinner and got more holes in it than in other countries. And two, the US has a higher proportion of its workforce in flexible work relative to other advanced economies.
1: We had a uh actually quite a significant boost to uh, incomes, even at the lower end, as a result of that enormous uh, fiscal support package in the US earlier in the year. But as we know, those higher unemployment benefits, some of which were higher than what people had previously got in wages, um, have run out now. And the president has said that uh, he's not going to try and do a deal on a further stimulus this side of the election. Um, What's the implications of that, do you think? I think the implications for, for,
4: for the poor in the U.S. are, are, are devastating. Um, you know, the U.S. has always been on the sort of stingier end of unemployment insurance. Uh, in the U.S., typically, if you're unemployed, you get, you get insurance for about six months. In continental Europe, it's more typical to get from one to two years of unemployment insurance. Also, the level at which you're compensated tends to be higher. In the U.S., you get about, you know, sort of typically around half your previous wage. In other parts of the world, you're getting a much higher proportion of your previous wage. So you're able to sustain your standard of living. And so the fact that that basic income support will be withdrawn will have very negative consequences for inequality and poverty in the US.
1: And we've heard uh, the, the head of the Federal Reserve actually warning about the, the pace of the recession, the re- recovery itself Facing a threat from that, that you could have this sort of double dip that's entirely produced by by policy. I wonder. I mean, in your in your previous um, very illustrious uh, jobs, you have spent quite a lot of time advising countries on policies, but developing and developed. If you're sitting in, I don't know, the UK Treasury now or uh, Chancelleries across across Europe, how does the sort of unevenness of the impact of the virus and the recession affect how you think about the recovery? Because countries are trying to think about how to help countries grow out of this, but they're still living with COVID.
4: You know, the initial reaction was to just put a bottom on people, put a floor on people's incomes and the f- things like furlough schemes, unemployment insurance, those were all ways to just keep people supported in the early stages. But I think we're, we're moving to a, to another stage in which there must be m- much greater differentiation. And we know that some jobs will disappear permanently. You know, I don't think anyone's going to be ordering new airplanes for major airlines anytime soon, for example. Uh, and we know that things like retail, the retail sector will change fundamentally. We were already seeing that starting to happen. We know that's likely to be permanent. And so we can't go against the grain of those big economic structural changes. But we have to, we have to basically support people to, through the transition to move to jobs which are going to be in those parts of the economy that are growing. And other countries manage this. Uh, You know, I always hold Denmark up as a fantastic example. They spend 1.7% of GDP on reskilling workers. That's in normal times, not even with COVID. Uh, Most countries spend one one hundredth of that. Uh, But it means you're able to get people back into work quickly. They have income support when they lose their jobs, but they're very quickly supported to get back into new jobs through training. Work done in partnership with employers to make sure that the skills they acquire are relevant. So this is, it is a doable thing, but it does require much more serious resources to help people move on than most countries dedicate
1: yeah, what's it called? It's flexicurity or is their model. Yeah, so you feel secure and you're, you're secure that you're going to have a job, but it's not necessarily going to carry on being the same job. Um, it's, uh, it's frustrating how often Denmark seems to appear top of the list on all these, uh, all these comparisons. I see actually, and I'm sure it's related, um, they have done pretty well managing the virus and they come very high on the trust in government um, measures. Um, and of course, those two things go together and we are not seeing them go together um, in the UK. Absolutely. The and they,
4: they also rank top of the list on happiness. So it's sort of, <laughs> you know, it's all a virtuous cycle. But people, I think that is part of the the legacy of COVID is that all of, you know, people are carrying too many risks on their own, risks of unemployment, risks of ill health. Uh, and one of the solutions to this is to share those risks more widely in society. And and it's not just socially desirable, it's also economically more efficient.
1: Of course, if we did come out of this saying, look, government needs a bigger role, not just right now where it's been forced to sort of put a floor under people's incomes, as you said, but longer term, we need to put back some of those supports for people, risk-sharing mechanisms that we'd taken away over the last um, few decades, you know, that's going to cost money. And I just wonder when you hear things like that's the story in Cleveland and other places where the gaps in income, but also wealth are very stark. Um, does it open up the potential to talk about wealth taxes as a way of paying for the cost of this crisis or the cost of spending we know we have coming down the road. Um, do you think that's easier now if we've seen very graphically how some, you know, the stock market has kept going up as people's incomes this year have gone down?
4: No, wealth inequality has gotten very, very extreme, and this has gone up the political agenda. I think you know, there are three ways you can tax wealth. One, you can tax it when it gets passed to the next generation through inheritance tax. Two, you can tax it things like capital gains and dividends. Uh, and that's also very common. Uh, Most countries have some kind of inheritance tax and some kind of tax on capital gains. The thing that's really difficult and which people are debating much more now is taxing the stock of wealth, uh, which people have accumulated over the course of their lives. There's only four countries in the world that I'm aware of that that try and do that. Norway, Spain, Switzerland, and Colombia. Many other countries have tried and failed and change their minds. So Finland, France, Iceland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Sweden have all attempted to tax the stock of wealth and have found it too difficult. Mainly because frankly, the wealthy and their accountants are very good at evading wealth taxes. So you've got lots of grief and very little revenue. And so while I think politically wealth taxes might be part of the solution to the current fiscal challenges, I think in the end, broad-based Fairly designed taxes with few loopholes uh, are much more likely to be able to sustain a a sort of generous, effective social safety net in those countries.
1: Hmm. Well, we shouldn't, I shouldn't let you go without talking a bit about the rest of the world, about the developing world, because... um, the gaps that we're seeing there particularly in the sort of level of support that governments are able to provide in response to this recession obviously much larger even than we're seeing um, in most parts of the US. I mean I was looking at numbers the other day I mean the poorer countries have largely not suffered a lot of Covid deaths and you know the much, much higher population in the developing world still seeing a total number of deaths um, much uh, lower or on the same order as the, the developed world. But they've got completely hammered by the global downturn. You know, what, what's, what are the priorities? What can the rest of the world, sh- what should the rest of the world be doing about that?
4: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the good news, partly because of demographics, because they're younger populations, the death rates have been lower, but the economic consequences have been devastating. The good news on the economic side is that most developing countries now have mechanisms in place to transfer income to the poorest households very effectively. So more than 100 developing countries now have cash transfer schemes where they can get small amounts of money onto the mobile phone banks bank accounts of poor people very quickly. And so from Egypt to Ethiopia to Tanzania to to Peru, uh, those systems have worked really pretty well So the mechanisms have been there. The problem developing countries have is they don't have enough resources to to put through the mechanisms. And that brings us really to the problem of the global financial safety net and how for rich countries, you know, there have been literally trillions spent to, to support the economy during this crisis. For poor countries, that just hasn't been possible. And there hasn't been anywhere near an adequate international response in terms of providing financing to the poorest countries to help them cope.
1: Baroness Shafiq, thank you so much for joining Stephanomics. Pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
1: We've been talking about inequality in this program and the gaps between the haves and the have nots. But when it comes to countries, there's now a pretty large gap between the countries that have apparently tamed the virus and those that are now bracing for a second wave. So for this last part of the programme this week, I wanted to give you a sense of how the other half lives. Visiting a place where hundreds of millions of people are going on holiday this week, travelling, meeting family, going to the movies, all the things we might dream of doing without a care in the world when this pandemic is finally over. But it's not a dream. It's happening right now, this week, in China. And here to tell us more is Bloomberg's China economy editor, James Meger. James, I guess you should tell us a bit about how special this week is in China and then what's actually been happening.
5: Well, this week is a big, a big holiday week. The 1st of October this year was is China's national day, of course, and then it was also the mid-autumn festival, which is a big, it's kind of like Thanksgiving in the US, families get together, people gather to, to celebrate the, the, the festival. Those two both fell on the same day, and so there's a, a week-long Period of holidays this uh, for the first week of October, and and as you said, hundreds of millions of people are traveling across the country. People are taking this week off to go to the movies, go shopping, go on holidays to the beach, that kind of stuff. So it's it's a massive week for for tourism, and it's a massive week for for you know for for shopping and, and going out.
1: And of course, there's been quite a lot of discussion in the states and the, across Europe about whether or not Christmas is going to be cancelled this year. Certainly, a lot of talk about how the limits on numbers and. Uh, constraints on hospitality, all the things we've grown used to, are going to affect our ability to celebrate Christmas or or Thanksgiving. But it doesn't seem like those kind of things are impinging. I mean, people are deciding to just go for it.
5: Well, it's been six weeks now since there was a confirmed case of COVID on the mainland in China. So people are obviously not concerned that they're going to get sick if they go out, if they go to the movies, if they catch a plane. If they get on a train, they're just not worried that they're, they're going to be sick. And so they feel free and they feel confident that they can do all of these things. You know, in Europe or America, maybe the case there may be restrictions. But even if there was no restrictions, I mean, how confident are people going to be to travel across country to go have Christmas at their parents or their grandparents' mm-hmm. place? You know, if there's a chance you could die or get very sick to have that turkey. So the situation in China is now that people are confident that they can do these things and not get ill. And so they're going out and doing them.
1: Um, You say that people uh, basically feel like they don't have to fear catching COVID because there's so little around. But do do you think there's a risk now when you have so many hundreds of millions of people getting on trains, going to beaches, that we will get a return of the virus in China?
5: I think some people are concerned. I mean, I've heard that some schools have told parents that if they go on holidays somewhere and there's there's an outbreak of COVID in that place, when they come back from, from their holidays their kids will have to quarantine at home for two weeks. And so I've heard that many families are not going on holidays just because they don't want to take the risk of having to then quarantine at home again for two weeks and go back to homeschooling, which as everyone now knows is not a great situation. I mean, I've been doing that myself for for a little while and it's not the best educational experience for for parents or students. And so I think a lot of families maybe are are just you know no, don't want to take their risks so they're not traveling. So you know the numbers of people who are traveling are down on last year. Um but you know I think for the most part people are confident that they can they can go away and that they won't be there won't be an outbreak. And it, and if there is an outbreak, I mean China's shown that it has the ability and and, and knows what to do to sort of stop that in its tracks. There was a series of small outbreaks in Beijing up in the north of China earlier this year, and the government very quickly quickly stepped in and squashed those. And I think if, if there is another outbreak after this holiday period, they can do that again.
1: Do we think this is part of just a back to normal for the Chinese economy generally, or there is, are there still parts that are showing weakness? I mean, in general, we've said that it's been a bit of a two-track Recovery, even in China, and that you know consumption hasn't got back to where it was. But is this perhaps a sign that things are changing?
5: I think in China, I mean, it's it's definitely still a two-track recovery. I mean, obviously, if you're taking if you're going to the beach in China, uh, you know you're not going to be the poorest people in the country. And a lot of the people who are traveling are those people who who may have gone overseas, may have gone to Japan or Thailand or South Korea, and now can't go to those places because you know they still have uh, cases there. And so they're stuck at home, so they're traveling domestically. I think a lot of the poor people in the country, they're not traveling. You know, they lost their jobs. Maybe they, maybe it was only for a few months or six months, but they still lost their job. They didn't have any income for that period. And so they're not obviously going to be able or willing to, to, to sort of spend money now in, in this period. So there is a recovery, but I think, you know, it's the, it's the kind of the case-shaped recovery that other people are talking about. The wealthy who were able to work from home for the last six months or whatever, are doing okay. And now they're spending and they're out shopping. The poorer people, the people who lost their jobs, the people who are really struggling, they're still going to be struggling and and not spending as much. And we're seeing that in the data. Retail sales data is not really coming back at all.
1: So there it is again, the K-shaped recovery. There's a lot of people going on holiday in China this week. But just as we heard earlier, in the US, there's a big chunk of the population that isn't celebrating and has been hit pretty hard. Uh, Before we go, James, I should say we were interrupted when we first tried to start this interview by someone coming to take your temperature in the hotel you're staying in for two weeks quarantine. Can you explain what's going on?
5: So my family and I flew back to China about about 10 days ago now from Australia, where we've been for the last few months. And prior to flying, we had to have a a COVID test. And then as soon as we arrived at the airport, we had another test. Then we were taken to our hotel. Since then, we've had another COVID test. So now three Times people have shoved things up my nose. Um, and then we also had a blood test to see if we had antibodies for the virus to indicate whether we had had it in the past and have recovered. And then every day someone comes to my hotel room and takes the temperature of my, my wife, myself and, and our two kids. Uh, so morning and night. So we're, we're in this hotel for, for two weeks. So I mean, that's an indication of how seriously you know, the government is taking this. Everyone who comes to China has to go through this. Everyone who wants to travel internationally has to do this when they come back, and I think it's that kind of effort that the government is putting into this to really, you know, control it is, is one of the things that is making people now confident that they can go out and they can enjoy themselves.
1: Well, we will be very glad. Bloomberg will be glad to have you back in Beijing. We should say that this was all before you were even going to be allowed to be back in Beijing. But I hope we will talk to you when you are, James Mayer, Thanks very much. Thank you very much. listening to stephanomics i should probably go back to that story about wimbledon because it's not entirely a happy ending for the all england lawn tennis club after they had that big payout this year the head of the club has confirmed that he's not expecting the club to get pandemic insurance at any price for 2021 we'll be back next week with more on the k-shaped recovery around the world and more on the ground reporting and analysis Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics all the time, follow at Economics on Twitter. And you can also find me on at my This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Sean Donnan's report from Cleveland, Ohio, was based on an article for Bloomberg Businessweek, which was edited by Robert Friedman and Christina Lindblad. Special thanks to Baroness Minouche Shafiq of the London School of Economics and James Megan. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy.